Welcome, friends, to the Politics Hour with Katie and Anatole. I'm Katie. And I'm Anatole. So uh, we've got a, we got a packed show for you today. We're uh, going to go through some updates on some old stories we've done and uh, look at some new stuff, too. Yeah, so uh, in, previous, er, in the previous show, we were talking about the uh, federal NDP uh, leadership race, and one of the candidates brought up the topic of minimum guaranteed income, or MINCOM. So uh, we're going to do a bit of an examination of MINCOM today. Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know what uh, guaranteed minimum income is, um, basically the proposal is that it is a guaranteed minimum income delivered periodically, so it's not all in one grant, it's like monthly or biweekly or however um, a specific program would hypothetically work. Um, And it is granted in cash or an appropriate medium which allows the recipients to choose what they spend it on as opposed to things like food grants or payment in kind with goods and services. Um, It is paid out on an individual basis, so not grouped by family. And it is universal universal and unconditional, so there's no test of means. So everyone gets it no matter how much you're already making And uh, there is no, uh, sorry, it's paid out no matter what. So you don't have to uh, prove intent to work or anything like that. Like it's uh, just money that you get because you are alive and people need money to live. Right. So this is uh, sort of in in response to people who work full time on a minimum wage job still do not, um, they still would not make it to the poverty line. Uh, so by supplementing income like this to everyone, uh, that ensures that uh, at least everyone can can make ends meet. Yeah, and um, they've uh, a lot of you probably know because we are from Manitoba that in the '70s there was a income experiment done. Um, it was done in Dauphin as well as in select uh, Winnipeg households and rural households. Um, so basically, they brought people up to the poverty line, from my understanding, uh, and um, the, uh, the, the research data, there was never really a final report written by the researchers, so we don't know what they were, what they think that they conclusively proved through this experiment, um, but what it shows was uh, that healthcare, uh, people being able to afford healthcare and, like, being able to live comfortably like well not even comfortably like people being able to survive uh was more successful i don't know if that makes any sense yeah i i heard recently on cbc there was uh some someone has done a a reanalysis of the data and uh what they found was that the burden on the healthcare system was greatly diminished uh and that um Although it it didn't really affect uh, people's propensity to be employed, which is a good thing, uh, it it did decrease employment among pregnant women and uh, and late adolescent men. So uh, obviously, in the case of pregnant women, that's a that's a good thing. They have time to, you know, take off work and and look after their child and make sure that they have a healthy child. Uh, and the counterintuitive thing about the the young men is that they were actually staying in school longer and not dropping out in order to go work. Yeah, and I mean, that's not really something you can do anymore. You can't really drop out of school to get a job anymore as easily um, because I think even, like, 
minimum wage jobs if you've graduated. I know I had to provide proof of high school graduation when I started work at the call center, Hmm. which is a very interesting employment uh, policy. Yeah, I I do think that there are still some employers that will employ high school kids like McDonald's. Oh, well, yeah, no, if you're if you're in high school, it's fine. But once you're at the age where you should have graduated, if you can't provide a high school diploma or like the fact that you're in university, then they will like terminate you. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that's just the particular call center I work at. I think I've heard uh, that from quite a few people I know working minimum wage jobs that they've had to provide proof of graduation um, because... I mean, I'm not I'm not really sure why, but uh, yeah, so it would be it'll be interesting to see how it affects employment rates now because they are launching soon a new minimum income experiment in Ottawa or Ontario. Ontario. Sorry, Um, (laughs) which is based in the Hamilton area and the county um, that Hamilton is in, as well as in Thunder Bay. And that targets uh, individuals and couples who are below the poverty line and seeks to bring them up to the poverty line right so it's about sixteen thousand dollars that an individual would receive and twenty four thousand that a couple would receive yeah so it's not paid out as an on an individual basis which is interesting but that's one of the points we had covered about minimum income but um basically how it works is that eligible people who are eligible from what i gather is people who are below the poverty line and there's a maximum amount, and then however much you make in a year diminishes um, what you'll get from the basic minimum income. So, um, for example, if you make $10,000 a year, uh, you um, get half of your annual income taken off of the uh, income amount that you would be receiving. So, right, they so would you remove 5000 from 16000 Yeah. 11000 Yeah, so it's proportional to, based on need, um, that's the idea anyways and that's mm-hmm. I think it's going to be about a three year exper- experiment and they're going to see what happens hmm. yeah that's interesting and uh, you know as we mentioned some candidates in the federal NDP race are talking about it um, I know uh, you know sometimes Mincom is, is brought up by uh, libertarians counterintuitively um, who advocate bringing in a minimum guaranteed income uh but in order to bring in that, they would scrap all social services, uh, <laughs> which, I mean, I, I don't think that's very well advised. No, and that's not what they're doing. The Ontario government has indicated that they're not going to be diminishing any welfare payments or health care payments or anything like that. And um, also for uh, disabled participants, they can earn up to an extra $6,000. I don't know what that amount is based on and like how they would get the full 6000 versus only mm. 3000 but um, they are making extra allotments for people who need more money because they cost more to keep healthy. Right. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. And 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 people wonder how how this gets paid for in the long run as as we mentioned uh, you know people who have money can you know are, are generally in better health and it takes a, a lesser toll on the healthcare system. Uh, which is one of the greatest expenditures that every government has, or every provincial government has. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by cutting down on that, you can make every dollar go further. Yeah, and I mean, um, apparently, health healthcare spending, healthcare spending is uh, very controversial among conservatives who 
Uh, some of them, some of the further right people think that we should not be spending as much on public health care. Um, so this would be a good way to uh, take the burden off of the public health care system, hmm. I think. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. So uh, we're going to move on. Uh, going back to another topic that we talked about on our last show, we did take a hiatus last week. But uh, two weeks ago, uh, we talked a little bit about May Day. Uh, and uh, we were telling you about two events that were planned to happen in Winnipeg on May Day, and uh, luckily I went to both of them. Also, disclaimer, I did not go to any of them. I was uh, otherwise occupied with something. Uh, so I am reacting to this live on air, so yes. you're welcome. Live retelling. So um, <laughs> essentially the, the two events um, that, that weren't exactly competing, but that uh, happened you know, one one event joined the other. Uh, the first one was a Justice for Errol Green rally um, organized in part by Revolutionary Student Movement and uh, Bar None. Um, so uh, again, just a quick reminder, Errol Green was, uh, was in custody a year ago at the Winnipeg Remand Center, um, was assaulted by prison guards and died in custody. Uh, that was on May 1st, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a rally held in front of the, the law courts, uh, in, in solidarity with his family and to demand justice. Um, I'm not sure what's happened to the guards in question. Um, but, uh, yeah, so greater inquiry, things like that. Um, it was not attended by members of the Winnipeg Labor Council who were, uh, organizing the other rally and who generally organize the May Day rally every year. Uh, the reason being that Winnipeg Labor Council also represents the union of prison guards. Oh. Uh-huh. So, right. intrigue. Uh, so, anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so, anyway, uh, the, the, the rally for Errol Green started at 4.30. The uh, Winnipeg Labor Council march started at 5.30. So, uh, I, I got to things a little bit late. Uh, I got to the Errol Green rally just as it was wrapping up. Um, and, uh, and people were starting to march over to the, uh, Winnipeg Labor Council rally. Now, where, okay. where controversy starts to happen, okay. uh, revolutionary student movement was marching under the flags of the Soviet Union. What? Yeah. W wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. and you know, they're, they're protesting police brutality and, and inhumane prison conditions. And they're marching under the flags of this, like the, like the Soviet Union. Yeah, like hammer and sickle in top left corner, in yellow on a red background, like straight up flag of the Soviet Union. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you could see my face right now. Yeah. So me personally, I don't, I don't f with the USSR that much. So, uh, mm -mm. yeah. I mean, I, I was looking for a little bit more of a of a radical tinge than what the Winnipeg Labor Council usually provides. They they tend to represent a bit more conservative labor in the city. Uh, but I mean, USSR though. I don't I don't think that's uh, I think that's a very bad idea. I do not. I, that does not sit well with me. Yeah. I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that Russia is an example that we really want to be going by in terms of how uh, communism gets implemented in the future and I don't think that marching under something that people 
viscerally despised so much is a very good idea if you're trying to uh, make a stand for a specific cause that really, I mean, yeah, like because they were still marching with the Errol Green rally, right? Right, and and sort of the the Errol Green rally was supposed to go and then join the Winnipeg Labor Council right. march, which it did. Uh, you know, I I just find it so ironic that you know May first is to commemorate the Haymarket massacre, which is an instance of police brutality, and then you go and supposedly wanting to remember and and act in that spirit and go march under the flag of USSR. Weird. Anyway. So uh, the <laughs> the Errol Green rally happened at the law courts uh, on Kennedy, and uh, the Winnipeg Labor Council's march was was slated to start at Memorial Park, so just a block away. Uh, so I marched over, did some chants and stuff, uh, joined the crowd, handed out some some leaflets, mm-hmm. which were quite interesting. And actually, I I wish I'd brought it with me, um, but they were they were a bit provocative, but nothing in them was was necessarily too out there. It criticized the NDP for uh, being too lenient, uh, for for giving in to some populism under Gary Dewar, and then sort of not backing off from that enough uh, under Selinger until the very end, things about poverty reduction, things like that. Uh, and th- that was on one side. And then on the other side, uh, it was saying that they don't support any marches with the support of police uh, there. Okay. So, you know, that's reasonable. It was a bit inflammatory, but, you know, it was... That's a real thing to talk about, though. Like, um, I think uh, Pride Winnipeg is evaluating whether or not they uh, want police at the march this Mm -hmm. year, at the parade this year. Um, And uh, I think it was... Toronto. Toronto police who said that they were... Uh, very offended by Pride Toronto's decision not to allow police officers to march with them. I think that's, I think that's really ridiculous. I think that's really childish of the Toronto police to not understand where the gay community is coming from in not wanting uh, police presence at a at a peaceful march. Uh, marginalized peoples who have a history of uh, being assaulted by police officers. Hashtag Stonewall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For real. Yeah. Uh, that the Toronto issue comes sort of was was started off by demands made by Black Lives Matter Toronto mm-hmm. at last year's Pride Parade. Anyway, that's a separate issue. So <laughs> um, so the we're, we're back at the the Labor Council March. Yes. Um, and uh, first speaker came up. I, I can't remember her name for the life of me. Um, but she made a point of saying that quote we're we're here uh to represent all workers including police and prison guards okay so i mean were i in the position of the winnipeg labor council i just wouldn't have said anything knowing that the rsm was there knowing why what they were up to um but anyway they made a specific point about it uh and so that incited uh some shouts from the crowd of f the police well, etc. You know, pretty justified, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, that that devolved into about a two-minute shouting match between the crowd and and the speaker. Um, anyway, uh, there there were a bunch of different labor groups there. Uh, Amalgamated Transit Union uh, was the largest represented. 
Uh, there were other left-wing groups there. Um, NDP candidates, Swab Canoe was there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the, the, the march started relatively uneventfully. Uh, marched down the usual parade route, uh, up Memorial to Portage, Long Portage, then down Donald, Broadway, back to the ledge. Mm-hmm. Um, the RSM radical contingent marched towards the back uh, with their USSR flags flying high. Yeah. Um, and uh, they eventually made it to the ledge. And uh, and I guess for some reason, the the Winnipeg Labor Council only planned to have one speaker mm-hmm. at the at the ledge, plus then uh, a rendition of the Internationale, which was fun. Um, but during the one speaker uh, who who didn't really touch on on anything about uh police or anything uh the rsm started a chant and started to completely disrupt the event Mm -hmm. uh shouting justice for errol green slogans and uh slogans against the prison guards i I, it's been a week and a half now i don't remember what everything exactly was uh but they they generally just kind of uh tried to shut the whole thing down um from the back i mean what's the point Right. <laughs> I don't like I am not I'm not I do not want to diminish the justice for Errol Green cause because I think that is something that we need to fight harder for, um, and justice for our inmates. But um the RSM seems often like it just wants to be inflammatory to me, uh, and mm-hmm. it will do so by any means possible. By like raising a Soviet Union flag or by chanting something that, you know, it's it's not that march anymore like you had that event that event ended amalgamated into a larger mayday march that is organized by a group that you know represents unions if you don't agree with that and you want to take a strong moral stance then don't go yeah one thing that was interesting is that at the uh justice for errol green march um they were joined by representatives from uh, international Workers of the World, a.k.a. the Wobblies, mm-hmm. and uh, the local uh, anti-fascist organizers, Antifa. Um, basically, when when the RSM started chanting and, and disrupting the speech at the ledge, uh, representatives from all the other unions who, who bring their flags, as you do, to Mayday protests, they all went up and stood behind the, the speaker who was being interrupted. Um, and... Uh, actually, the the Wobblies and Antifa also uh, walked up and stood behind the mm. speaker. So I think they ended up losing more people than... Yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like they uh, messed up again. Yeah. And uh, I won't say I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I do see the need for for a more radical contingent in the city because they're admittedly like since the winnipeg general strike which we'll be talking about next show by the way uh winnipeg labor council hasn't done that much of note radically um you know and i I think that it is important to have some radical element that continues to push and challenge you but just like as long as you can just like coexist in the same space you don't necessarily have to get along or Mm -mm. or agree on all the points that's that's completely fair and you know their ideological position is is valid mm-hmm. just like don't crap on everyone else all the oh, time yeah you're not going to see me defending police unions or anything like that but mm-hmm. um 
you in order to build a strong movement you have to be welcoming to a vast majority of people like you have to be welcoming to more central leftists in the hope that uh, you can work together to build a left like a real left in um, our community and then uh, maybe a radicalization can happen with the more central people because that's how it happens with most people is that you start off somewhere in the middle and then you hear ideas that are super radical and you kind of agree with one side or the other and then that's where you kind of go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that if you're only looking for radical people who already hold the same opinions as you, you're going to alienate the people who were already working with you before who maybe didn't share all of those extreme opinions. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, at the risk of sounding like liberals, but... <laughs> yeah, at the risk of sounding like capital L's, uh, like... No lowercase l liberals. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. True enough, but like, um, cooperation is the only way to get to a stronger movement, and I don't think that alienating uh, people who mean well and who want to help is like a good idea mm-hmm. ever. Like, just in general. Yeah, you know, I was I was marching for for most of the time alongside uh, Michael Barkman. Uh I think now former uh, chairperson of Canadian Federation of Students, Manitoba, uh, which has attracted the ire of of the revolutionary student movement um, across Canada, actually, just the Canadian Federation of Students in general, um, especially in Quebec. I think revolutionary student movement actually Mm -hmm. managed to push out the Canadian Federation of Students altogether uh, because the CFS is, is viewed as too moderate. Uh, and, you know, admittedly, like the CFS hasn't done a whole lot, but what it has done is it's gotten a lot of students involved in student politics and student issues. Mm-hmm. And some members of the RSM, who I won't name and whom I'm friends with, you know, they came up through the CFS and, and they had a lot of, uh, a lot of experience, um, you know, from working with the CFS. Yeah, I mean, this is a thing that I see a lot with uh, radicals is that they they start out in a certain place and then grow to a different place. And they uh, when they've once they've grown to a certain place, a lot of them seem to not be able to reflect back on how they used to be and then foster that kind of growth in other potential radical lefts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of an empathetic lack, like it's a lack of sort of empathy and understanding of uh being hesitant to be really radical because uh, putting yourself out there like that is scary and people are afraid of things. Yeah. Should we move on from this incredible rant? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, once again, we'll we'll be talking about the Winnipeg general strike next week because uh, the anniversary of, uh, of the start of the Winnipeg general strike is May 17th, I believe. 15th. 15th. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So a big day uh, on Tuesday in British Columbia, uh, they had a big old uh, provincial election, and uh, for the first time in I think it's fifty-six years, they've elected a minority government. <laughs> Personally, I'm I'm a big fan of of minority governments. Yeah. I know people say that it's unstable, but it uh, you know it's it's really important, and I think it it reflects how people voted and forces mm-hmm. compromise to some extent. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm always in favor of one viewpoint not having all of the control. That's mm-hmm. that's always something that I go for. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, 40, uh, 44 seats were needed for a majority. 
the BC Liberals got 43. I think the NDP were at 41 and the Greens mm. at three. Wow. So the Green Party holds the balance of power. Uh, mm-hmm. So that means uh, whomever they choose to side with will have the majority on any given bill mm-hmm. uh, that's being debated. So that that is a very powerful position yeah. uh, for the Greens. Even though it's just three and they're technically not an official party, uh, it's, it's big. Yeah, that's crazy good for the Green Party. Mm-hmm. A um, bit of a downgrade for, for Christy Clark and the BC Liberals. I think mm-hmm. they lost seven seats uh, since since the dissolution. Uh, and NDP made some made some pretty significant gains. Um, so the uh, interesting thing is that some of these results could be changing pretty drastically uh, by the end of the month. Mm. Um, a whole lot of recounts are going to be have to had. They're going to have to have a whole bunch of recounts. <laughs> um, there's there's one seat that was uh, that was won by only nine votes, but Holy. that has a disproportionate amount of absentee ballots, which are not counted until right. the end of the month. Okay. So that one will will possibly flip mm-hmm. uh, from NDP to Liberal. So that's that's kind of exciting. Um, just a note um, on on BC Liberals, they're not liberals as you would think of it in the federal sense uh they're an amalgamation of a former conservative party and a former liberal party that took most of the members of the conservative party and the Mm -hmm. name of the liberal party so uh they're they're a bit more center right uh than than the other two parties and speaking for bc that that you know i guess they they fall on the on the left end of the country both (laughs) geographically and and politically (coughs) (laughs) Um, interesting don't do comedy friends Ah. (laughs) interestingly (laughs) enough um, most of the BC liberal seats were won on the Alberta border so if that's any indication (coughs) sorry it's okay I'm I'm fine Um, yeah that I mean of course that's an indication yeah so uh, a couple couple issues that were discussed during the campaign of course uh, top of mind is the BC housing situation, mm-hmm. uh, especially in Vancouver, uh, where houses are just ridiculously unaffordable, and uh, people in our generation living in Vancouver have no hopes ever of homeownership, <laughs> effectively. Um, yeah, so yeah. So a, a couple plans were announced. Uh, the Liberals, um, you know, they they've been in government for the last sixteen years, uh, and so this is their their. I guess their fifth mandate uh, and this is actually the first time that a female um, premier has been reelected mm. in Canada. Interesting well. fun fact. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've been in power so they've had time to to put in place their their platform on this. Uh, so what they've uh, they're they're not really promising anything new uh, but they want a 15% foreign buyers tax on purchases. Uh, and a new program of interest-free loans up to $37,500 for first-time home home buyers and a commitment of about $1 billion overall toward building affordable rentals around the province, Mm. uh, which housing groups say would mean $133 million a year for the next three years on top of what's already been committed. Um, So they they also want municipalities to cut down on, on wait times for... Uh, for building permits and stuff, uh, specifics of which are vague. Uh, NDP um, wants to partner with uh, cities and nonprofits. So, unlike 
public-private partnerships, which happen a lot in this province. Um, this would be partnering with nonprofits and with cities uh, to create 11,400 new units of affordable housing for 10 years, which uh, is the amount that the BC Nonprofit Housing Association says is needed. Um, the NDP is also promising a $400 a year grant to renters to give them something equal to the homeowner grant uh, and more protections for renters under the law, um, including the removal of the current fixed-term lease provision. So that's that's pretty important because uh, a lot of young people, um, homeownership is just not even mm-hmm. a consideration. Uh, so it's it's going to be renting. So $400 a year. I don't that's know, that, my monthly rent. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not, not a whole that's lot. That's nothing. Yeah. Like, it's a nice thought. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Green Party actually had the most aggressive approach. Um, They were promising 30% foreign buyers tax. uh, That would apply to the whole province. Hmm. Um, And they would introduce a speculation tax uh, plus capital gains tax for sellers who flip properties uh, in less than five years. Because that that is a huge part of the, the problem that's driving up the price is foreign buyers are buying up relatively cheap properties, mm-hmm. fixing them up, and then selling them for huge profit margins. Right. Yeah. Thanks, HGTV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, taxes, um, you know, uh, liberals, um, again, their their budget was their main platform on that. Uh, they, they, um, the, the budget actually was tabled in February, but not passed into law yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they want to bring in changes to medical service plan premiums, uh, but otherwise um, relatively little change. Um, they want to actually uh, freeze uh, the carbon tax, which they've implemented, uh, mm. maintain the freeze, actually, until 2021, uh, while other provinces catch up. Um, so right now, I guess they have they have the highest pr- carbon taxes and the federal government has mandated that provinces either implement carbon tax or cap and trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're freezing theirs uh, until 2021. Okay. Uh, however, they have admitted that that means that that will put them um, under their targets of emission reduction of 33% by right. the end of the decade. So. Okay. And so hold on. So they're, freezing it because they want other provinces to catch up that's right so like right now their their carbon tax is the highest in the country and so Mm -hmm. that's viewed as uncompetitive okay so other provinces will have to be implementing carbon taxes in the next few years anyway right uh so they're they're hoping that you know soon other provinces will will be at the same level okay that they're at um in terms of the environment um so the, the Liberals, uh, they actually support the expansion of, of pipelines approved by Trudeau, uh, the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, as long as it meets their so-called five conditions, which I think are, are pretty lenient. Um, and uh, they also support uh, constructing uh, what's called a Site C dam. Um, the NDP... Uh, is is against both of those, and the Green Party, of course, stands even more firmly against those. Um, yeah. Okay, well... Pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know if that type of thing would, would come up in Parliament and the <coughs> Green Party would have a chance to, to exercise their balance of power. That seems more like a cabinet decision. 
Um, yeah, well, and I mean, we're not really going to know how the Green Party's balance of power plays in until the end of the month anyways. That's right. Yeah, so. it, it could it could flop. Uh, yeah. And anyway, the last thing we're going to talk about is is cash for access, uh, because that's been something that, that's been talked about on the federal level. Uh, in BC, there's very little uh, regulation on on uh, donations and and lobbyists. Mm. Uh, it's been a kind of wild west situation, uh, as they call it. And so the Liberals have them having been in power for the last 16 years and having benefited from cash for access, which is basically, uh, you know, paying an exorbitant fee to attend some event uh, at which the premier or some cabinet minister will be present mm-hmm. in the hopes that you get a 10-minute conversation with them yeah, uh, and, you know, shady dealings happen, allegedly. Um, <laughs> so the the BC Liberals have been reluctant to bring anything in uh, on that front, but now they are uh, promising to, to impose caps. Um, NDP has promised to ban corporate and union donations and review uh, hmm. donation limits, um, and uh, Green Party same same deal uh they would set the limits in line with federal rules which caps individual donations at one thousand five hundred and fifty dollars a year uh and they would also ban contributions from anyone living outside bc which is currently not banned and seems kind of weird what yeah i did not know that was the case that's weird yep well well yeah i mean i say weird but i mean interesting (laughs) regulation and such in my best evil villain voice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, speaking of regulation and such, how's that for a segue? Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about um, the the bill uh, that was recently forced through in the federal uh, House of Commons uh, concerning parliamentary reform. Yeah, so uh, one of the many things that uh, that was that's brought in by this new uh, liberal bill uh, is a change to the way question period happens. Uh, and this was something that uh, that Prime Minister Trudeau had talked about earlier on in his, uh, in his mandate. Uh, he wants to bring in something that's kind of similar to the British system, where the Prime Minister has, uh, has a dedicated day for questions in which all of, the, uh, all of the questions in question period would be directed towards the Prime Minister. Um, you know, Trudeau has has been sort of uh, admonished for his... Uh, he doesn't answer any questions. Well, yeah. Not he never only, answers any questions. Not only does he not answer the questions, he's very frequently not in the House, and he doesn't debate as much. He's, he's known for loving campaigning and not so much liking the actual governing bit. So then, like, why is he implementing this if he doesn't even want to be there? Well, it's so that he only has to be there one day a week, I guess. Oh, oh my God. Right, uh, and so then you can go one day a week and just like not answer anyone's questions. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> great. That's that's basically the criticisms from from the other parties, uh, NDP and uh, and conservatives are are have been making quite a fuss about it. But uh, I think the bill passed in the end. So um, it's it's interesting to contrast this where the Liberals have used their majority. Uh, to to force through a bill um, and not require consensus from the House Mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, last time we talked about electoral reform that supposedly required some enormous national consensus. Yeah, I mean, I I said it last week, and I will say it again. Uh, Liberals 
like capital L liberals, uh, like to tout the idea when it's convenient for them that uh, they want to do what everyone wants. Yeah. Um, but when it's not convenient for them, they just go and they pass things as quickly as possible and push them through governing bodies because they can, because they're in the majority government. So. Yeah, you know the they they promised when they came in a, a great departure from from the Harper era, and uh, I think in 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 the first couple of months of their of their mandate, they certainly delivered on that to some extent in terms of optics. You know, they they increased the accessibility of the prime minister to media and things like that, um, but it's it's not back to the way it was before Harper. Uh, in, in that particular respect, um, and you know, broken promises about electoral reform, and many, many others, uh, they're they're fulfilling the liberal stereotype of campaigning from the left and governing from the right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is like the garbage policy that we should be criticizing Trudeau on. Yeah. This is like the stuff that we should be mad about because governing this way is not in the best interest of all of us i mean under debated bills don't really do anyone any good yeah okay and we're gonna wrap up the show with uh two different tales of two different people getting fired in two very different circumstances (laughs) (laughs) um so the the first one we're i know our mandate is mostly to talk about canadian politics but when when some big things happen in the u.s you know it's it's inevitable we're going to talk about them uh, big news this week: uh, Trump fired uh, FBI Director James Comey. Big surprise! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <clears throat> a, a bit of a bit of context here. Uh, Trump's Trump's letter supposedly states that he's being fired over the handling of the Hillary Clinton email scandal during the campaign. Uh, this makes about zero sense total. <laughs> Well, as with, like, literally everything Donald Trump has ever done in his life. Right. <laughs> I mean, but, like, putting putting all that aside, um, you know, if you if you go back to the campaign, uh, initially uh, Trump was was praising Comey for for having um, brought up brought up the Hillary issue a couple days before the election. Uh, him and James Mattis, uh, the or no, sorry, Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, uh, the uh, Attorney General. Mm. Um, they they were both praising James Comey um, because he he announced to the public that that uh, they were reopening an investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Turned out to be completely harmless, nothing at all. But apparently that that had an effect um, on on uh, on the election when when it came to election day, um, and. Uh, Anyway, so that that was that. However, once the uh, Russia involvement uh, scandal, involved Russia's involvement in the election, the scandal surrounding that started to break. Uh, Trump's uh, Trump's attitude towards Comey started to sour a little bit. Um, basically, uh, we're of course talking about the the allegations of Russian hacking into mm-hmm. the DNC and uh, mm-hmm. leaking of information to WikiLeaks uh, and such. Um, uh, as well as collusion between senior Russian officials and members of the Trump campaign and Trump administration. Uh, some some more obvious signs of that is the Michael Flynn debacle, uh, where, uh, you know, he'd received money from the Russian government, had been warned to 
disclosed that, did not disclose it, lied about it to the vice president, got fired. Um, so there, there's a whole investigation going on about it. And Jeff Sessions, the attorney general who normally looks after matters of the FBI, uh, had to recuse himself because of his involvement uh, in the Trump campaign. And so uh, he could basically find himself uh, under investigation. So obviously he has to step back so that uh, he doesn't get too involved. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, apparently uh, New York Times and Washington Post on Tuesday broke that uh, a couple days ago, James Comey uh, asked for an increase in funding for the uh, for the for the Russia investigation. There were also some interesting hearings in front of Congress. Uh, James Comey spoke. Uh, the the former temporary um, acting attorney general spoke, uh, and uh, it seems that there was quite a quite a big web net. Uh, and anyway, so uh, on on Monday uh, during the day, while James Comey was at a recruiting uh, event in Los Angeles, um, news broke that that the Trump had administration had had fired Comey, mm-hmm. uh, and Comey found out uh, while watching TV in a local FBI station. Uh, so <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to feel sad for James Comey. Like he, he like seriously screwed things up for Clinton. I mean, she did a lot of that to herself, but um, it's, it's pretty, pretty obvious that, that his, uh, his actions leading up to the election did have some effect. Nevertheless, uh, this is some some <clears throat> pretty shady garbage going on. Yeah, I mean, it just it sounds really shady. Um, I don't I don't necessarily think that uh, James Comey is the reason Hillary Clinton lost. Oh, definitely not. Um, I I have a lot of opinions about that, but this is not an American politics show, so <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. Um, I don't know. I I know I rarely feel sorry for people in high bureaucratic positions when they get fired for messing stuff up. So. Yeah, I'm. I know, but like, yeah, he, he messed it up. Yeah. But Trump had like what three months to fire him over that. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, but I mean, Donald Trump is not a rational person. Donald Trump is a person who is swayed by what he sees on TV and uh, like watches TV, and that's his reality. Like, you know, like yeah, I, I think right? I think what the issue that the people are raising now is that the the timing is weird, like. FBI is sort of closing in on on the Russia um, issue, mm-hmm. and uh, and so this was an attempt to uh, Nixonianly disrupt the the investigation. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't think that's really uh, even super speculative at this point. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I also don't super know what I'm talking about here because I have uh, taken a self-imposed break from American politics because it was stressing me out a lot. Um, so Anatole lo- knows a lot more about this than I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, suspicious, yes. I don't really feel bad for him, but it is suspicious. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll have to see what, what comes out of this mm-hmm. and, uh, and who Trump appoints to replace James Comey. Yeah. Um, I mean, like anyone that that he appoints is definitely going to be under some suspicion of, of being a lackey. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. That'll be, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. So the other person who got fired or rather resigned before they could get fired, 
uh, back to Canada, and this is under various dubious circumstances, is uh, Senator Don Meredith. Uh, so this was the senator who was accused of having an inappropriate sexual relationship with a 16-year-old and continued until uh, she was 18. And she was a staffer, right? She was a staffer, yeah. So she was under his employ? Yes. Well, And used his position of power to uh, lure and, uh, yeah, continue the relationship. Pretty gross. He should have been immediately fired, and I'm really, really mad that he hasn't been. Like, like in any other job, that's exactly what would have happened. Yeah. Um, Basically, what, what happened was he claimed that, that they uh, were not romantically involved until she turned 18. Um, then there was an ethics uh, review board investigation. They found that that was absolutely not the case and that they recommended uh, that, that a vote happen uh, for him to to be expelled from the Senate, mm-hmm. uh, at which point he would have uh, a chance to defend himself uh, in the chamber, uh, and then a vote would happen as to whether or not he would get expelled. Um, but he resigned uh, before the vote could happen. So the aftermath of that is that he gets to keep his senator's pension. I think that processes like that are in place for exactly this reason, and I think that uh, he took advantage of the system that was laid out for him. I yeah. like. I'm not. I'm not even gonna be uh, like remotely forgiving about this because I think that that is a reprehensible thing for him to have done. Um, like, so any any uh, crap minimum wage job you have, uh, if there are managers, they make a point of talking about what happens when there are uh, power imbalances in relationships if you are dating someone within the company. That's something that, uh, like I talked, I had, we had a thing at Walmart when I got trained at Walmart about like managerial and like cashier relationships and all that. Um, it's highly, highly inappropriate for him to be using a position of power to basically uh, woo and coerce a girl into this relationship. And uh, that's inappropriate. That should result in immediate termination. And I don't think that he should get a suspension at the very least. I think that uh, should the girl press charges that they should, you know, be found. He sh- I, I would uh, call for him to go to go to jail for that. Yeah, it's disgusting. Definitely. Um, yeah, and the the Senate of late has has been great at really disgracing itself. I mean, you've got senators like Patrick Prazo, who is you know multiple allegations of domestic abuse, drug charges, runs a strip club, and he's still a senator and has somehow been cleared of all his charges. Um, you know, you've got the senator expense scandal that supposedly all these incredibly smart people couldn't understand what they can and what they can't claim as expenses um and then you've got like just ridiculously privileged idiots who complain about uh ice cold camembert on air canada flights like (laughs) uh is the senate even relevant today i don't know enough about the processes of the senate to comment on that at the moment but i'm sure i will read a lot and have an informed opinion by (laughs) a later date that's something we should probably uh, talk about, though. Yeah. I mean, like, so much for sober second thought. Yeah. Huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Like, actually, the the Senate put out their their own, like, little children's book 
uh, pretty recently. Wait, what? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not showing not, you. I did not hear about this. Yeah, it's it's called the Wise Owls or something something to that oh effect. Oh my god. Yeah, so all the animals in the forest have uh, have sort of their their little parliament and um, it's like an animal caste system. Not not okay. quite not okay. quite. Um, but uh, basically, there was uh, beavers ask if they can uh, chop down some trees to build their dams, and so the animal parliament goes ahead and says, "Yes, by all means, you may do so, so that you can build your dwelling." But then the squirrels start complaining that, oh, God, these are our homes being destroyed. And the wise owls um, have being perched atop the trees and they see everything, uh, you know, inform the parliament that, no, this is a terrible idea. You should reconsider. And so that's the point of the Senate. Sober second thought. I have developed a facial tick <laughs> from hearing that story. Yeah. Uh, I rolled my eyes so hard that uh, now my eyes are like blinking really quickly and i'm just like i can't i can't yeah i i think that the senate has has really discredited itself of late and uh it's time for some serious reform beyond what trudeau has done where it's just effectively kicking all the senators out of the party and giving them a bit more independence i don't think that's necessarily a good thing seeing as these are just like randomly appointed people and uh how long do senators usually stay until age 75 that's insane yep that's ridiculous i don't like i don't feel like a 75 year old knows enough about what's going on in the lives of most people especially when you're at that high uh high wealth bracket and you're so rich that you're complaining about like drinks on flights um Mm -hmm. if you're if you're complaining about that i don't feel like you understand like the everyday canadian well enough to be making serious decisions on our behalf yeah i mean like some good things that the senate does is that they they hold um you know they do investigations and they uh hold panels of Mm -hmm. experts to comment on bills and things uh and you know that's that's a good thing and it saves time from the house uh, but the fact that they can amend bills and, frankly, stop them or, uh, you know, reimpose some some draconian ones is is pretty unfortunate. And that they hold power for so long. Yeah. Like that's like people in power should not just auto like get a pass like that. Mm-hmm. And they're accountable only to themselves. Well, yeah, exactly. Like they're not accountable to us when they're passing bills or blocking bills uh that affect i mean us and our livelihoods and situations like that's uh people in power should always be afraid Mm -hmm. i heard that somewhere i can't remember who said it but it's been floating around a lot on social media and i stand by it yeah that's that's good yeah they should always be afraid of losing power because they should be held accountable to the people who got them there. But the person who gets the senators there, they're appointed, right? So are they uh, appointed or elected? Senators are appointed. It's usually on recommendation of the prime minister. Yeah, but I mean, that's that still like the the accountability to the majority of Canadians is very very slim there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and then when a senator does something wrong. Uh, whether or not they should be expelled is discussed within the Senate. And then part of the discussion is whether or not the expulsion of the senator would attract more or less controversy than allowing the senator to uh, 
to remain. So the discussion is less about the act as opposed to the image of the Senate in the eyes of Canadians. Yeah, and um, also the discussion apparently takes so long that you can just resign if you're going to get expelled. Yeah, exactly. Like, had had he waited two more days, they would have expelled him and he wouldn't have his pension, uh, you know. But, but obviously, if they're having a hearing and it's been at the recommendation of an ethics committee that you're, you should be expelled, like, that's not... Like, he shouldn't have a chance to defend himself. He yeah. shouldn't. He shouldn't have that two-day period where he could resign if he wanted to because even if you don't think you're going to get expelled, the chance of your comfy senator pension over uh, nothing is an obvious one to that kind of person, I think. Yeah, like, definitely. And, like, yes, you should have the chance to defend yourself, but he had the chance to defend himself in the ethics uh, review, you know, and, like, present yeah. his side of the story. Well, and, like, why, why wouldn't they... Um, hold the vote and then present the findings of the ethics committee as like before they're voting for the consideration of the senate right like why would they publish the or like why would they publicize the ethics committee's findings so long before they take the actual vote oh uh, it's just how long things take in ottawa well it takes too long yeah i'm mad <laughs> I was recently told that I seem like I'm always angry, so I guess I'm living up to my to my reputation now. That's good. That's, that's <laughs> good characteristic. You're the only person who said that, so thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think uh, I think that's us for for today. Uh, so join us next week. We're going to be talking about um, the Winnipeg general strike and its repercussions uh, on history. Uh, some updates for the conservative uh, federal leadership race convention is coming up in two weeks, I believe. Uh, and the NDP race, uh, rumor mill is a buzz. Apparently, uh, Jagmeet Singh, Ontario MLA, is going to be throwing his hat in the race. Uh, so we'll have a lot to talk about there. Uh, maybe revisit some more fine-tuned policy points and uh, see where we go from there. Yeah, all right. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you all next week. I'm Anatole. And I'm Katie. Thanks for listening to The Politics Hour.